Titus was written by Paul. Titus was a like kind of missionary disciple of Paul, and we're going to find out later in the letter that Titus was converted under Paul's ministry because he calls him my true child in the faith, my son in the faith, he calls Timothy. And so these men were gospeled by Paul, and the Holy Spirit affected that gospel message, and Titus believed under Paul's ministry. And as he traveled with Paul doing ministry, he learned Paul's ways. Right? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what Titus did. And so we don't know exactly when Paul went and planted a church in Crete, but we know he did. Okay? Most scholars think that it was after his imprisonment in Acts 28. So you remember he goes into Jerusalem in Acts 20s, early 20s, and he gets arrested and he appeals to, to Rome. And so he goes to Rome by way of shipwreck and all these unplanned stops and finally makes it. And Acts 28 ends with his house arrest and the church and others being able to come and visit him and him preaching and teaching. Well, church history, not the book of Acts or the Bible tells us, he was released from that house arrest or imprisonment and he went on to do further missions work. And at this point, this unrecorded Acts 29, if you will, 30, 31, is when this church in Crete was planted. Okay? Now, Crete is an island, and I, I want to show you this because I think it's pretty sweet to see some modern um, pictures of it, but also, so if you were um, a missionary to Crete, you might see stuff like this. How would you like to do missions work to Crete or be, uh, be Titus? I think that'd be pretty sweet. Now, this is modern Crete. I doubt that was what it looked like when Titus was doing ministry. However, you can get a view of what Crete looks like. It's an island in the Mediterranean. It's sweet. Okay? This may be, you know, minus the cruise ship, what, what Paul landed on a beach or something. But I want you to see uh, the actual map. Okay, so, so it's an island. It's a small island. Whoop, my bad. And it is... In terms of the Mediterranean, here's Italy up here, here's Jerusalem over here, and here's North Africa right here. It's the biggest island in the Mediterranean Sea, right? Crete. And you can see all these cities in Crete. Um, so I just wanted to give you a visual. Oh, here it is right here. So here's Crete, big old island. There's, there's Italy. Here's Jerusalem. Right here's Egypt and northern Africa. Okay, so you get a visual in your mind of where Crete is and where Titus was ministering. <clears throat> How many of you guys want to go to Crete on vacation? <laughs> I kind of do. It'd be pretty sweet. All right, so Paul, Paul writes to Titus. He plants the church. He writes to Titus, who he left in Crete, to put the church in order, to establish elders, and so that Paul could then do what he does best is go and plant new churches. Paul was a missionary church planner. And so he goes into a region, establishes a body of believers, tries as quickly as possible to appoint some people to take over so he can get out and go do more missions work to unchurched, ungospeled people. That's who Paul is. Right? Even in the, in the end of the book of Romans, he says, my mission is Spain. And I hope when I get to Rome, you guys will fund me so I can go to Spain. So he's, already, he's always thinking... Ten cities ahead. That's just who Paul was. He says, I, I don't preach Christ where Christ has already been preached. That's Paul's thinking. 
So he goes to Crete, he establishes a church, and, and he leaves Titus there, which means Titus was probably with him. Okay? Now, this was written between probably 62 and 64. Paul is executed. His second imprisonment was um, between 64 and 67. And under Nero, he was martyred. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that information. Church history does. Under Nero's authority, Paul was beheaded in Rome under a second Roman imprisonment. And so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were Paul's last letters. Most scholars think 2 Timothy was the last letter that he penned, at least that's canonized. And so this is, in a sense, Paul's final instructions to his church-planting protege, now pastor-elder. So this is kind of like a father to a son. Here's what I have for you. And by way of writing to Titus, he's also authorizing Titus with authority, and he's also speaking to those in Crete, the Christians in Crete. And so this letter wouldn't have been like a personal email that Titus wouldn't have shared. This letter would have been also passed around to the church, and we have it, right? Like this was recovered, and this was found by the church to be authoritative scripture. It was recognized as authoritative scripture. And so we have it. So let me read the first four verses. Any questions about that? No? Okay, good. Titus 1, 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So, long introduction to a letter, but he wants to establish his authority, and Titus' authority. So, let's, let's go verse by verse. Paul is passing on the responsibility of leading the church in Crete, and I would think churches, there's probably multiple churches by now, it, it, even a, a gathering like this, a small gathering like this, would have been considered a church in the first century. Little house churches, that's basically what they were. They weren't these large mega churches of thousands of people those didn't exist till way later. Okay? So we're talking little, small congregations, very much like this, where they gathered, they sung, they heard and, and read Scripture together, they had it explained, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper and did baptisms, very much like we uh, do. We stand in the tradition of the, uh, the apostolic church. And so, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this gives us insight into one, how Paul saw himself, his self identity, and he is also giving his authority to speak over the church. So, servant is doulos in Greek, and if you are familiar with uh, John MacArthur's book Slave, a uh, great book if you haven't read it, it's all about that word in Greek, a whole book on one word in Greek slave. 
Okay. Now the translators like to, uh, in a sense, make that word more appetizing. Yeah, they, they soften it so it doesn't hurt as bad. But literally, it means slave. And so Paul, when he thought about himself as commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself in Acts chapter 9, he says, I am Jesus' slave. That's how I see myself. In other words, I don't have my own will. I don't just get to do what I want to do. I have a master over me, and I exist to do his will. That's how Paul saw himself. So you could say a bondservant, that's okay, but really the word is slave, and Paul saw himself as the slave of Jesus. Now, he also has a second identity. Slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle means simply sent one. It just means one sent with a message. That's all it means. So it's not this grand title that we've made it into. Okay? Now, there was the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. That is another category of apostle, and that group of men should be honored. But that group of men no longer exists. Okay? The office of apostle is gone. And so some of you probably have come from churches where you have apostles, right? Can I see hands, anybody? One, two, three. Okay, so, so some of you know what I mean by uh, the title of apostle is still used. So biblically, here's what I want to do just to help you real quick. There are other men in the Bible outside of the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul that are called apostle. Did you know that? There are. And so here's the way I like to distinguish this. This helps me a lot. There are capital A apostles and there's small a apostles. The capital A apostles was the office, and there's a criteria how you fit into that office, having seen the risen Jesus, having been commissioned by him personally, and having been established by the church with authority. Those are the capital A apostles. Small apostles are sent ones with a message, with a mission. Okay, so listen to John MacArthur. An apostle in the New Testament was one sent to carry the gospel to sinners. And several individuals in the early church, both major and minor characters, were called apostles. Barnabas, Epaphroditus, Andronicus and Junicus, and James, the Lord's brother, all bore the title, though they were not among the twelve chosen by our Lord. They are what 2 Corinthians 8.23 calls messengers or apostles of the churches. So, small a. In that broad sense, listen to this, believers today are capable or able to accomplish apostolic work through evangelism and service to the church. And so, I want to say, in that sense, one sent with evangelistic mission, and I even think, and this may be where some of us differ, but, but it's a secondary issue, that's okay. I think the gift of apostolic sort of fervor is still existing today. I don't believe the office is. So what would an apostle, gifted apostle look like today? Uh, it wouldn't look like one who gets to speak authoritatively outside of Scripture. It wouldn't be one who gets to sit on a throne in front of the church. It would be one who is on mission like Paul. 
wants to go do foreign missions work, wants to plant churches, wants to see people saved. You're sent with a message and you have a fire inside of you to see people come to know Jesus. You may have the gift of apostle. Not capital A, small a. Can we receive that? Okay. That's not what many modern church... I'm still quoting MacArthur. That's not what many modern church leaders mean when they lay claim to apostolic office. Instead, modern apostles are claiming authority, privilege, and power beyond or belonging only to men specifically appointed by Jesus. Okay, so we, we don't mean that people can be apostle in the capital A sense, the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. We mean in the small a sense, James, Barnabas, Okay, so it may be helpful to go to one of your former, maybe still, apostle friends and ask them, capital A, small a. (laughs) Just see what they say. Have that discussion. Ty's like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Okay, but but at least for you, if we're not going to have those discussions, at least get it straight in your mind, even if they claim, I am Apostle Mike, okay, you think in your mind, okay, small a, that's all you're getting from me. <laughs> I don't care if you have capital apostle. Hi, my name is capital A Apostle Mike. You should cross that big A out and put a little one. Right? Small a apostle. You know, apostle Timmy. Small a apostle Timmy. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, but Paul, capital A an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul was on his way to destroy the church. He was on his way to imprison Christians, have them executed. He was breathing murderous threats towards the church and Jesus himself. Jesus shows up in blinding glory, knocks him off his horse, and and Paul says, Lord, who are you? (laughs) I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What do you want me to do? Go to this house and I'll tell you what to do. And he receives further instruction. And his commission is he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the messenger to evangelize the non-Jewish world. The apostle of the Gentiles. Titus was a Gentile. okay, And he was fulfilling his commission. Now what's interesting about that is, even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he still tried hard to, and with much effort to evangelize Jews. In fact, he said in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, and also the Gentile or Greek. And so, and if you read the book of Acts, he always established the gospel message in the synagogue first. He always tried to find an in through the Old Testament prophecies to Jesus and showed that he has come, he has died, and he has risen from the dead. Believe in him. Okay. So, Paul, an apostle. So he sees himself as a slave of God, commissioned by Jesus himself, and he sees himself as sent by Jesus himself with a message, also with authority, apostle. Why? Okay, why? How did he see himself? What did this office and self identity of slave do? Like, what was its purpose? Well, it's for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. All right, so let's talk about that. 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul was committed to preaching the gospel so that those whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians 1 says, would come to faith. So think about that. When Paul gets up in the morning and he's eating his Cheerios, probably with bananas, he was thinking to himself, I'm going to preach the gospel today and the elect are going to get saved. That's how he thought about himself. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to admit, I don't think like that and I wish I did. I think I'm going to preach the gospel today and someone's going to punch me in the face. Somebody's going to disrespect me. Someone's going to argue with me. Someone's going to debate me. Someone's going to discontinue being friends with me. That's what I think. Paul's eating Cheerios going, Some, someone who's elect's getting saved today. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? What if we could think like that? And, and I'm going to start praying to that end for me and you. That we could think like that. So, so listen to... Uh, I think this is why he thinks like this. So listen to this. This is awesome. In Acts 18, 1-5, Paul shows up at Corinth, and he has a good time preaching the gospel and a bad time preaching the gospel in the same sense, and Jesus shows up in a vision to give him some news. Acts 18, 1-5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. What does that mean? Preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel, explaining Jesus from the Old Testament, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, which often happened when the Jews heard the gospel, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's Paul's pattern. So he left there and went into the house of a man named Titus Justice, not our Titus, different guy, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, I love that name. Like, I wish my parents would have named me Crispus. It's just so crispy, dude. You don't think? Instead, I just got Christopher. Crispus. Isn't that fresh? I mean, it just it makes me feel like a new pair of shoes. Crispus. Maybe I'll have a son someday and I'll name him Crispus. It's perfect. Because, listen, he believed, listen, he believed in the Lord. So, so let me give a defense of that. Crispus could be the full name, like Christopher, but no one calls me Christopher. But at least your identity in your head, your name, I'm a crispy dude, you know. <laughs> Always ironing his shirts. It would be perfect. All right. Sorry for the humor there. Anyway, so Crisper, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, so he's a believer, and together with his entire household, his whole household believed. We're not told how many were there, but they believed too. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That's the Acts pattern, believed and baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, now listen to this, this is key. Jesus shows up in a vision to Paul and says this, do not be afraid. Which implies what? He was probably afraid. Yeah, yeah. Like many of us are. Yeah. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on preaching the gospel, Paul, for I am with you. Why should not Paul be afraid? Jesus says, I'm here, man. I am with you. I'm right beside you. Though I'm invisible, I am here. And no one will attack you or harm you. He probably went, 
But listen to this. For I have many in this city who are my people. You know what that means? Paul, you go on preaching the gospel because I got people in this city who aren't yet my people and they're going to believe because you go on speaking. Do you think that has any application to us today? So, so Paul saw himself as a, as a slave, as an apostle. Why? For the faith of God's elect. So, so Paul rolls into Crete and he's like, God's got people here, and by my preaching, they're going to get saved. They're going to be born again. They're going to come to know Him. What if we approached our jobs, our families, Wilkinsburg, your neighbors, what if we approached it like that instead of like we normally do, just expecting rejection, expecting a stiff arm, expecting to get tackled with words or debated? What if we expected that God was going to save the elect, just like the Bible says He will. Would that change our attitude at all, do you think? I know it would me. And so I know for a fact, well, I shouldn't say that, it's highly likely that there are elect people in your family, among your coworkers, and in this city that will come to faith as a result of our proclamation of the gospel. And that should be encouraging. Amen. Amen. That means you... I was just having a conversation with a guy on, on July 3rd, and he was telling me, he's like, man, I, I don't really feel the responsibility. Like, I have to save people. I was like, that's good, because you can't save people. We can't save anyone. But God will save His people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. That's what Gabriel said to Mary. His name will be Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And Paul, when he thinks about himself as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel, he says, the people whom God have chosen for salvation will come to faith as a result of my preaching. That's what this this verse says. Okay, so let's think about this. This will help you greatly. You should assume the eternal election of every person you come in contact with. Just assume they're elect, because you don't know. You are to treat every, even the most wicked person you know. We are tempted in a worldly sense to look at people and say, he'll never get saved. Well, yeah, if it had to do with the world and its conditions and the conditions of their heart, maybe they never would. But because it has everything to do with God and His unconditional grace, meaning there's no conditions in the person that have anything to do with that grace. Because that's the truth, we have hope for every single person we come in contact with. The most hardened atheist can be softened in a second. Okay? God can and will bring his people to salvation. But from our perspective, we have no clue who it is. And I I say, please do not, do not assume you know who's elect and who's not. Because you don't. So you need to treat everybody like they're elect and pray for everybody like they're elect, whomever God leaves on your heart, and know that he will bring the elect to salvation. Isn't that encouraging? So the doctrine of election 
which is all over the Bible from beginning to end, does not discourage evangelism, but it's the foundation of it. It's This will be effective when you go out and tell people about Jesus because I have people in this city. I got people here. Now we're going to talk about means in verse 3, but let's, let's go to uh, the end of verse 1. So it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Faith is they're, they're trusting in Jesus for the, found, for the salvation of their sins. And their knowledge of the truth. And so Paul is going to unfold the revelation of the Bible to these people, all connected to Jesus. And that will accord with their godliness. Now that, that uh, translation I don't, I don't think is a good one. Um, it can be translated that's what, that way. That's why it is translated that way. But it actually could be translated this way, leads to godliness. So let's read it that way. Which leads to godliness. Their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. I don't know what you want, man. <laughs> He's good. Yeah. Again, I, I like to think that Paul got interrupted by pets too when he was preaching analysis. Yeah, probably. Chickens. Chickens, yeah. So I apologize. Hopefully not much longer. We'll have to deal with pets during the message. Um, let's do it one more time. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. As we grow in our understanding of the truth, it affects us. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but what? By what? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As your thinking gets more in line with the truth that is, always connected to Jesus, you change. You change. You are transformed. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, you change. And it's only by believing it. Now, when we get to Titus 2.12, um, we'll, we'll just blow that up. Okay? The grace of God has appeared, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Okay? We'll talk about that. But for now, you need to know as you grow in your understanding of the truth and the realness of your redemption in Jesus, your life will change. Leads to godliness. And so th this is also kind of a... Uh, evidence that you are saved we're never saved by our works but the evidence that we're saved is our works so the 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 reformers said it like this we're saved by faith alone but not faith that is alone and rc Sproul changed it and i like his better we're saved by faith alone but not faith that remains alone so if you, if, you, if you say, I believe, but your life has no change, your affections do not change at all, you simply made a decision or made a confession, it probably wasn't the real thing. But even if your life changed a little and you see small evidences of grace in your life, it's real. Now I know we have a tendency to highlight the junk, at least I do, 
And, and we might look at all the junk in our lives and say, yeah, I might, I'm not the real thing. But I would say, have you changed at all? And do you have a desire to change more? Then it's the real thing. And as you grow in your knowledge and believe, enabled by the Holy Spirit, you will be transformed. Okay? So that's how Paul sees himself. Paul, what are you for? (laughs) What's your purpose, Paul? Paul says, my purpose is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which will lead to their growth. Salvation and growth, that's what Paul was all about. Read any of his New Testament letters. He wants you to know who you are in Christ. He wants you to know what that means for your daily living. And he wants you to be transformed into the image of Jesus, which is exactly what you were predestined for, Romans 8, 29. Verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So the result of men and women coming to this faith is eternal life. Now, growing up in an evangelistic, kind of in the 80s culture of church, we always did these, all right, I want every eye closed and every head bowed. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. I want you to raise your hand now if you prayed that prayer. I want you to stand up in your seat right now if you prayed that prayer. And how many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Now, and we're promised eternal life, right? In those, it's like, do you want to go to hell forever? Or do you want eternal life? Mm-hmm. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Yeah. Well, that's not exactly how it works. Okay, it's not an incantation. It's not a magical formula. We entrust ourselves to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and we receive His gift of righteousness. It's Him in place of us as a substitute. Okay? Now, there is a believing that actually occurs. right? You did believe. Once you didn't, then you did. Some of us don't know when that was. Some of us do know when that was. But listen, when the moment you went from spiritual death to spiritual life, you are now on the road right now to eternal life with God. Your eternal life has already begun. Death is a door which you step into all goodness, all grace, all peace, all mercy, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Death is a door for Christians to the reality of eternal life. What is now by faith, then will be by sight. Eternal life. And so he says, in the hope of eternal life. What gets Christians up in the morning when it's really difficult and really hard is a solid hope. Hope is a future anticipation of something good, but it's not a maybe when it comes to eternal life and the things of God. It's not, man, I hope the Steelers have a good season this year. And man, I hope the Pirates keep getting that, uh, that Cardinals score, whatever. I don't follow baseball. <laughs> they're right behind the Cardinals. They're in second place, man. They're, they're, they're creeping on them. That's pretty close. Anyway, all right, enough of baseball. We're doing Titus. It's not, the, it's not the I hope that is not sure. The hope of eternal life is absolutely sure. Amen. And you can bank on it and rest in it and, and ponder there when it looks like 
man, this is a really dark place right now for me. The hope is it will not always be so, and it won't. Okay? That's the hope of eternal life. So he says, God's elect get saved. They change, and it's in the hope of eternal life. And then he says, which God, who never lies, God never lies, let let God be true in every man a liar, promised before the ages began. All right, now that's a complex uh, sentence right there. So listen what that means. The note there um, in the ESV would say it like this, before times eternal. That's how you could translate that. So what does that mean? What does it mean before time began or before times eternal? He's talking about eternity past. Who in the world existed in eternity past? God. He's the only one that existed. Not angels, not anyone else. God in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pre-existing time itself. So when did time come into existence? Did you ever think about that? When? When do you think? (laughs) Good answer. My, My thinking is... Yeah, that's, that's what I would say. So when God began to create, he put the stars and the suns out there for seasons and marking times and days, right? So we could say that at least evidenced by Genesis chapter 1, he put the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon day and night now as, as time. Time came into existence. But before he created anything, it was him. Before angels existed. Maybe time came into a being in being when uh, angels came into being. I don't know. But there was a time when it was just God. And, and listen to what he's saying. Eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began. Who did he promise it to before the ages began if no one else existed? Who? Jesus. So God the Father promises eternal life to Jesus before time began. And you're like, what is that? (laughs) I thought he was already eternal. Well, it's more like John 17. Listen to John 17, 1 to 3. Jesus is praying to his Father. And he says this. This is right before he goes to the cross. This is like right before the Garden of Gethsemane. From the Last Supper, on the way to the Garden, maybe in the Garden before he separates from the apostles and goes and prays by himself, let this cup pass. We don't know for sure, but that's the context. And he says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, so God the Father gives all authority to Jesus. And Jesus says, to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to Jesus. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so God the Father promises to Jesus a people before time began. And Jesus knows that his mission to earth is to die for those people whom the Father has given him. This was the eternal plan. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 1, we were chosen in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before time began, before the ages existed. 
So some theologians have said it like this. We Christians are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. That's crazy. And Paul says, my mission is to preach the gospel so that those whom the Father has given to the Son could come to faith. That's how Paul sees himself. So there it is. Now, and at the proper time, verse 3, manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God. Now, manifested in his word through the preaching. Remember Paul said, um, Jews look for signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles or Greeks, but to those whom God is calling or to the called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul preaches the gospel, this plan before the ages began to save a people. It's manifested, it comes about as Paul preaches. The people are being saved. We're wrapped up in an eternal story that happened before time even began. And and here's what's beautiful about verse 3. Now listen to me closely. What we as flawed human beings do with our sinfully warped logic is we think, okay, if God's already determined everything that's happened and if He's going to save whom He will, then we could just kind of chill and do nothing. And I could see why we would think that. However, verse 3 shows that God not only predetermines the end, but He predetermines the means or what will happen to cause the end which He purposed. So Paul says, listen, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, Paul saying, I'm the means by which God is accomplishing his eternal decrees. By implication, that will happen with us as well. As you share the gospel with people, as you teach a Bible study, as you give a book away, as you, however you evangelize, however you get the word out, God will accomplish his end of saving his people through you. So, so this is very important to understand. God not only determines ends, but he determines means. The means by which the end is accomplished. And the means by which this end is accomplished, specific to verse 1 to 3, is the preaching of the gospel. Okay? Any confusion there? Okay, good. Excellent. So listen to Tim Chester. He says, God the Father had such pleasure in His Son that He chose to share that pleasure. He created and recreated us so that we could share His delight in His Son. The Son died so that we could share His experience of sonship and be loved by His Father with the same love His Son receives. We get to be the means of that. We share in the Father's love because we're united to Jesus as sons and daughters. And now, he's actually going to start the letter. That was introduction. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. So Titus is, uh, as I said, Gentile. He was probably converted under Paul's ministry. And Paul calls him his true son in the faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Doug Wilson said that often in Paul's letters, you see 
grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he asked the question, well, where's the Holy Spirit? Like, we know Paul was Trinitarian. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's the grace and peace. He's the means by which the grace is effective, and the result of the grace is peace with God and continuing peace with self and peace with others as you grow. Isn't that sweet? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is the one who affects the gospel message that you preach or teach or share, however means, however the means comes. You are the one who gives the message. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the grace effective, the grace of that message creating life in that person. He's the, the life creator. Um, so let me, let me read this to you, and then, uh, then we'll close it down. In Acts 13, Paul is doing what he always does. He, he goes into a city. He preaches. Um, this is in Galatia, one of the cities in Galatia. And he goes to the Jews first, and, and here's how it goes in verse 42. As they went out, this is after he preached, to the Jews, the people began, or I'm sorry, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So we want to hear these things again next Saturday, Paul. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, the gospel. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the gospel. Now listen to this. Ears open. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed, appointed to eternal life. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What caused the believing? The appointing to eternal life. It's our verse here. For the faith of the sake of God's elect, that's why I preach. That's why I proclaim. I'm the means of God's people getting saved. Listen, by implication, this is what we do. That's why we're here. One of the reasons. That's not the only reason. It's one of the main reasons we're here. is to proclaim the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will affect that, and God's gift to Jesus, a people, will be created. And I would contend that we, there are people in this city who are going to believe through our message, this church's message, this church's witness, this church's work. Isn't that kind of exciting? Amen. That God's people will be created. Jesus said, I'll, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's going to use our proclamation as a means to save his people. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks again. Thanks again for this morning. Uh, we, we ask that you would help us. Help us through this book. Um, I pray that as we get a clearer understanding of what your word teaches, 
what you would say to us as a small, new church, the same context that Titus was in. Um, I pray that you would light this book up to our living, make it effective for our living, help us to be transformed as we get a greater and deeper understanding of this, of this letter. Uh, may Jesus be more and more glorious in our sight. May he be more and more uh, affected in our affections. Um, may our affections rise for him, and may that change us. I pray for everyone in here that uh, as they seek to proclaim the gospel and share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus, that they would be accompanied by your empowering Holy Spirit, please. We need you. We cannot do this on our own. We are impotent without you. Left to ourselves, we can accomplish nothing. And so we fully, totally, again, as, as your church, entrust ourselves over to you and say, use us for the proclamation of your good news in Jesus. And would you use us to bring your people to eternal life? And everyone said, Amen. Amen.